Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries, but I promise all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we have another wonderful listener suggestion. So, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours. So, pick your poison accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say New Orleans? That's going to be a single shot. And every time I say mm, Katrina, that's going to be a double shot. All right. Now that we have the business end out of our way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So don your best beads. Grab your most elaborate mask, and we're heading down to my neck of the woods, Bayou Country, with today's topic of demons, voodoo, and a grisly murder in NOLA. (laughs) Alright, I'm telling you, I'm actually making gumbo tonight for dinner, because this one just put me in such a mood, so think delicious. Okay. You can wear your hunger and your haunts on your sleeve in New Orleans, and nobody will ever judge you for it. You can take a leisurely stroll down the street of sin, and if you walk far enough, you'll find profound peace and quiet. You can grab a go cup filled with strawberry daiquiri and a fried shrimp po'boy at the same joint, 
and sits on an iron bench overlooking the beautiful Mississippi River, thinking about what you'll have for your next meal. And perhaps most of all, New Orleans mourns their dead with such passion and pride that strangers can join in on the funeral dirge, umbrellas in hand, swaying hips down the cobblestone streets, singing along to St. James Infirmary. It's quite a scene to behold in the Big Easy, with lazy summer days and cool moonlit nights, a great place for artists, lovers, and anyone else who needs just a little inspiration in their life. Addie Hall was a free-spirited, feisty-tempered, independent artist who found herself in Bohemian New Orleans after a rough life in the Northeast States. A poet, artist, dancer, and French Quarter bartender with a host of friends, Addie Hall was weary of relationships with men because of the abuse she experienced in her past. She rode her bike around the quarter to get wherever she needed to go, and on to her job as a bartender at the Spotted Cat. She referred to herself as a courtesan, someone who belonged in and was part of the French Quarter life. But life as an artist is never easy. You try to balance artistic expression with your surroundings and lifestyle, and you're never sure where those pieces fit together. Addie fit there right in the middle, trying to find herself and her muse, all the while battling her own demons and addictions. Zach Bowen was a charismatic, charming, and good-looking young man who left an impression on everybody he met. He grew up in California and had the laid-back attitude that comes from growing up on the sunny Pacific beaches. Zach had married young to a woman 10 years his senior by the name of Lana. They had two kids together, and in order to care for them, he joined the army for the benefits that it would provide. When Lana took the kids and decided to leave him, Zach was devastated and lonely. He found odd jobs around the French Quarter after being generally discharged subsequent to his tours overseas in Iraq and Kosovo. Zach was a war hero suffering from severe PTSD who desperately needed help that he just never found. And Addie met Zach while they were both bartending in the French Quarter. She liked to give him a hard time and play the mean girl as a way of flirting. But really, it was just a test to see how much he could handle. Addie had an ugly side to her, suffering from bipolar disorder and irregularly taking the medication to treat her mental illness. This caused angry, uncontrolled outbursts. Many of Zach and Addie's friends remember the outrageous fights that they would get into. A tumultuous relationship from the start, fueled by drugs and alcohol, Zach and Addie were destined for destruction. Dating for weeks before Hurricane Katrina came into view, Zach and Addie decided to stick out the Category 5 hurricane together at her apartment. Amid the storm and flickering lights, they fell deeply in love and made a life for themselves in the weeks following the destruction in the empty French Quarter. They were inseparable from that point forward, and made a name for themselves as they served up booze and scrapped meals to their fellow wayfarers of Katrina. 
Zach and Addie were even photographed for national magazines and newspapers in the wake of the devastating storm, being interviewed about their choice to stay in the city. They felt like the king and queen of the quarter for a time. But the whole thing inevitably plays out like a horror movie. On October 17th of 2006, at around 8.30 p.m., police arrived on the scene of an apparent suicide jump at the Omni Hotel in New Orleans and found the smashed body of a young man who had plummeted five stories down to wind up dashed upon the hotel's parking garage. It seemed pretty straightforward at the time. This guy had, for whatever reason, decided to climb up onto that lonely rooftop overlooking the city lights and end his own life by jumping off to oblivion. And that was that. Yet a search of his front pocket led to the discovery of a crumpled, five-page, handwritten note stuffed within a plastic bag that would start to unfurl one of the most gruesome, senseless crimes in New Orleans history, if not the entire United States. It would be a murder mystery packed to the rim with grisly violence, sickening murder, and whispers of voodoo and demonic possession, all laid across the desolate backdrop of the devastated landscape of a city still reeling from the wrath of Hurricane Katrina. This might be a good time to back up just a little bit to the beginning of our story, to a time when 28-year-old California native and Kosovo and Iraq war hero Zach Bowen had received his general discharge and had moved to New Orleans, where he lived a relatively carefree existence as a bartender in the French Quarter, a quaint area known for its charming French, Spanish, and Creole architecture. He was recently separated from his wife, a former stripper by the name of Lana Shupak. It seems that Bowen spent most of his time drinking and partying and trying to put the horrors of what he had been through in military service behind him. Although he was known by friends to become morose at times and make cryptic allusions to terrible things he'd seen in war, particularly something to do with a child, he was described as mostly a very personable and social fellow, able to push away these terrible memories. Indeed, the friendly, attractive, and charming Bowen had no trouble meeting girls at all. And of course, one of these was his fellow bartender by the name of Addie Hall. The two of them hit it off immediately and began dating, which is right around the time when the specter of Hurricane Katrina rolled out from over the horizon to bring death, destruction, and suffering upon the city. Although the hurricane had left in its wake utter devastation, it served as a catalyst for drawing the Bowen and Hall ever closer together, with Bowen moving in to live with her and the two refusing to evacuate the city with nearly everybody else. The two became some of the sparse, ragtag group of holdouts who preferred to stay among the flooded wreckage of this once vibrant city that they loved rather than run away to a life of uncertainty. And indeed, they became famous for this, sometimes appearing in the news as a result of their refusal to budge, where they were portrayed as hopeless romantics, letting their reckless love lead them through hard times. With no electricity or fresh water in the area, the couple eked out a living using a makeshift stove fueled with fallen tree limbs and bartering for goods and essential supplies with a handful of other holdouts in the area. 
They were also known for feeding stray cats and mixing up cocktails for other survivors and visitors who passed through, such as reporters or Red Cross workers. And the wild and unruly Hall became rather infamous for flashing her bare breasts at passing police officers. Well, things started off as well enough as they could, all things considered, and they managed to survive as the city around them slowly began to come back to life somewhat. It is reported that the couple's relationship was far from perfect and had inexorably devolved into frequent shouting matches and breakups, but they always seemed to get back together again. Adding to this turbulence were numerous missed days from work and criminal charges filed against them in the form of marijuana possession for Bowen and a firearms charge faced by Hall for pulling a gun on a man during a heated argument. And it was claimed by friends that Bowen often complained about his girlfriend. Despite all of this, the two stayed inseparable and even stayed together when they were evicted from Hall's apartment in September of 2006 and forced to find new lodgings in the still mostly apocalyptic wasteland of the French Quarter. They ended up moving into a room above the locally renowned Voodoo Spiritual Temple on North Rampart Street, which is actually not a particularly strange thing to find in a city with a deep history of voodoo magic and its practitioners. The change of scenery apparently did nothing to cool down the animosity the two seemed to display towards each other, and their intense arguments got worse, if anything. Hall, in particular, was said by friends to be the main aggressor in these battles, reportedly being a rather aggressive drunk and irrationally jealous and possessive towards her boyfriend, who she was constantly accusing of cheating on her. During this time, Hall simply stopped showing up to work altogether for the most part, and both her and Bowen were known to drink nearly constantly, which only added fuel to their arguments and Hall's jealous rages. Yet despite this churning turmoil, the two still inexplicably stuck together, and people who knew them claimed that they were capable of great affection, kindness, romance, and shows of love towards each other as well. Sort of a deep love-hate relationship, if there ever was one. It seemed that nothing, not the devastation of the hurricane, nor their bumpy patches, seemed to ever be able to truly break them apart. On October 5th, 2006, they apparently got into another spat during which time Hall confronted him about his perceived cheating and threatened to kick him out of the apartment. According to witnesses, the argument was no more heated than was usual for them, and it was just assumed they were going to kiss and make up as always. Bowen had even complained about the whole ordeal to the landlord, who had told them that they should just try to work it out, and when neither of them was seen much around, it was assumed that this was exactly what they had done. In the following days after that night, Bowen would appear at his usual bar and was described as being very friendly and in extremely high spirits, enthusiastically talking about, a t about taking a vacation in Cozumel and generally reported by drinking buddies and other bar patrons as being in the best mood he had been in in a long time. There was no indication that anything was particularly out of the ordinary, although he seemed to be eating, drinking, and generally spending more money than usual. When he went drinking with friends on the evening of October 16th, 
Bowen was his usual cheerful self and showed no particular signs of anything amiss. Then on the night of October 17th, Bowen found himself having a drink at the Omni Hotel, and it would be his last. And this is where we find ourselves, back at that grim scene at the Omni Hotel, with the battered, lifeless body of Bowen, lodged in the garage roof and baffled police, studying the cryptic note he had scrawled out beforehand. In the note were clear directions to the address where he was living, and a chilling confession to the brutal murder of his girlfriend. According to Bowen's spooky letter on October 5th, 2006, he had suddenly gone to Hall and strangled her to death, with the note stating, and I quote, I killed her at 1 a.m. Thursday, October the 5th. I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick, end quote. The police were spared no detail of the ensuing carnage in the letter, which among other things stated, this is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a patrol car to 826 North Rampart, you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend, Addie, in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge, and a full signed confession from myself, Zach Bowen. I scared myself not by the action of calmly strangling, strangling the woman I've loved for one and a half years and then desecrating her body, but by my entire lack of remorse. I've known forever how horrible of a person I am ask anyone, and decided to quit my jobs and spend the $1,500 cash I had been being happy until I killed myself. So that's what I did. Good food, good drugs, good strippers, good friends, and any loose ends I may have had. I didn't contact any of my family, so that will explain the shock, and had a fantastic time living out my days. It's just about time now. A search of the video surveillance footage of the hotel roof at the time showed a distressed-looking Bowen with drink in hand, pacing about and repeatedly approaching the edge of the roof, only to retreat and pace again, as if sure what to do or if he could go through with it, before finally and fatally plunging over the edge. The corpse had also been subjected to numerous cigarette burns, which the letter claimed to be self-punishment for what he had done and for his failings as a human being. Concerned police hurried to the specified address and had no trouble entering due to the fact that a key had also been found in Bowen's pockets. Immediately, they were met with the jarring sight of a message spray-painted across the walls that read, Please call my wife. I love her. I'm a total failure. Look in the oven. Please help me stop the pain. In the kitchen were two pots, one of which contained Hall's head and another containing her hands and feet, as well as oven trays holding her dismembered arms and legs, all of which had been thoroughly cooked to, and I quote, separate the meat from the bone, end quote, as horrifically stated in the note. Depending on the report, these parts were seasoned with herbs and partially eaten, and others claimed that the parts had been rather charred, with some sources even saying that potatoes and carrots had been prepared and placed upon the counter to add to the pots, all of which would later earn Bowen the nickname of Katrina Cannibal. The woman's torso had not been cooked yet and was found wrapped in a plastic bag and stuffed into the refrigerator. Other reports would claim that Bowen had sexually assaulted the corpse before chopping it up as well. 
The corpse was in such a gruesome state that it took a few days to even properly identify, but it turned out to be indeed the body of Hall. Authorities pieced together a grisly scene of Bowen strangling Hall in the bathtub before dismembering her with a knife and hacksaw, after which he had carefully cleaned the bathroom, set the thermostat to 60 degrees to delay the inevitable rotting of the body, and then nonchalantly gone out to spend money and live it up for a full 10 days, with no one being any the wiser of the horrors that lied within this apartment." During this time, he had also taken the time to write a full confession within the pages of his girlfriend's diary, outlining the whole ghastly ordeal and containing some of the more grotesque revelations, such as the alleged necrophilia with the corpse and the revelation that he had stopped his preparation of the corpse when he was only half done. Interestingly, despite the widespread claims of cannibalism, police claimed that autopsy reports from Bowen showed no signs of human flesh in his stomach, even for a city that has had more than its fair share of crime and gory, violent history. The Bowen murder proved to be one of the most unsettling and sickening anyone had ever seen. With Anthony Canatella, the New Orleans Police Department chief of detectives, stating at a press conference, and I quote. I've been on the job 40 years, and it's the first time I've seen it at this level. It was obviously very gruesome, end quote. The whole horrific crime was so shocking that the apartment where it all went down has become known as the Rampart Street Murder House, and the truly hideous crime reverberates through New Orleans to this very day. But what caused this young man to suddenly so completely and viciously ravage a woman that he had been so in love with and with such relatively little provocation? One of the main theories is that this was a man haunted by some unknown demons from his past in the military, and with the constant drama in his relationship, a simmering time bomb waiting to go off. However, although he did have his relationship issues, just like many people I might add, Bowen was most likely described by those who knew him as basically a good-hearted person who was well-liked and gave no indication that he was at all capable of such atrocities. In fact, one owner of a bike shop that Bowen often went to, Tim Iskew, knew him fairly well and said of this whole bizarre and grisly incident, and I quote, I'm having a hard time reconciling the person I remember with the person who did this. End quote. How could such a more or less mild-mannered man, regardless of personal demons, resort to such ghoulish barbarity over an argument that was pretty much the usual par for the course with his girlfriend? Many of the locals don't think this has to do with personal demons at all, but rather very literal ones. They point out that the point at which the couple moved in above the voodoo shop marks when their arguments and disagreements escalated dramatically and claim it is possible that an evil spirit or some dark magic or voodoo curse associated with the place had influenced them and ultimately consumed and possessed Bowen, forcing him to do his grim deed with such ruthless barbarity. Regardless of whether this is true or not, 
It is interesting to note that the Rampart Street murder house has since been reported as being heavily haunted and permeated with weird happenings, including unidentified moaning, the touch of unseen hands, and an intense feeling of dread that is said to almost physically repel those who draw close. In a documentary about Zack and Addie, as well as other interviews for television serials and online media brought to light a close friend of the ill-fated couple, one Margaret Sanchez. Her tears of devastation at the loss of her best friends is unnerving, especially now. Margaret pleaded guilty and was subsequently convicted in the 2012 death and dismemberment of Jaron Lockhart, a Bourbon Street dancer and young mother. Margaret and her then-boyfriend, who she knew as Alan, went to a Bourbon Street Gentleman's Club and lured Jaron with the promise of a hefty paycheck for a private performance. They took her to their Kenner home, stabbed her in the chest, cut up her body, and threw it over a bridge, resulting in Jaron's remains washing up on several different Mississippi Gulf Coast beaches. Terry Speaks, or Allen, was a registered sex offender from North Carolina who violated his probation and had a long history that Margaret was unaware of. In 2015, he was convicted of second-degree murder following a trial where he fired his attorneys and took up his own defense. Sanchez was later sentenced to 40 years plus 20 for a second-degree murder charge, as well as obstruction of justice and conspiracy to commit murder. Sanchez and Speaks were identified in a surveillance video dated June 6 of 2012 from the club that Jaron worked at. One of the employees of the club first reported Speaks as he recognized him as a previous employee of the club next door and remembered Jaron leaving with him and another woman later identified as Margaret Sanchez. The, vid the video was broadly distributed on local news channels and Margaret's own brother reported them to the authorities. Just six days later, on June 12th, the couple was arrested at a traffic stop near their home. When Sanchez was interviewed, she said she was aware of the dancer's demise since it was broadcast on the local news. She related that it was similar to how her best friend died and said, and I quote, I felt so bad for her family because I had a friend. My friend was Addie Hall. She was cut up and was cooked, and her boyfriend jumped off a hotel. End quote. Margaret Sanchez was an emotionally vulnerable woman who said she loved her boyfriend. He took care of her needs and, as far as she was concerned, was a good man. When she found out about who he really was, she said, I feel betrayed, heartbroken. I mean, my life was shit when I met him. One can't help but compare these two deathly tragedies at the French Quarter, that of Zach and Addie and Jaron Lockhart, so similar in their execution and the emotional strangleholds they had on their key players with mental illness and sinful vices. They say when you die, your story isn't over. In Zach and Addie's case, it's just the beginning. He was her muse, and she was his ultimate desire for a more free way of life. Unfortunately for them, their romance could never play out the way they hoped it would. Betrayal, deceit, lies, cheating, mental illness, drugs, and alcohol were all a cocktail for a disastrous and murderous romance. And their friend Margaret Sanchez, who was looking for a way out of the French Quarter and found it through a man she thought she understood and fulfilled her needs, only to find out it was all a terrible lie. <laughs> 
Death is a tragedy, no matter how you look at it, whether it's physical death or the death of spirit through addiction. It can take hold and change the course of your journey forever. The Bowen murder-suicide has become legendary in New Orleans for not only its sheer horrific level of violence, but also for the lack of any discernible reason to any of it at all, and whispers of voodoo magic and spirits that surround it. In the end, what caused this charming man with so many friends to catapult so firmly into the realm of sadistic, grotesque murder? Was it, as some have said, the urging of dark forces beyond our world? Or is it just that a beast of sorts lurks within us all, pacing about in the murk of the deepest recesses of our psyche, needing only the proper stimulus to come raging forward? What unthinkable things are each of us capable of if these inner forces truly exist deep down and can no longer be contained? Whether Zach Bowen was the victim of black magic fueled demons from beyond, or merely the demons that infest us all from within, it is a spooky crime that surrounds itself with rumors of the paranormal and perhaps offers a glimpse through the caged bars of that beast that resides locked away within each of us. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today on Renegade Talk Radio, and I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think of today's story. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, my darlings, that is all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.